So at this time, we are uh, blessed to have our second message for today, uh, brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley, and I didn't get the new title, so there's the new title right there. Well, good afternoon. I have never used my laptop up here, so bear with me as I figure out the best way to do it. Probably should have practiced before. But I usually don't plan on using my laptop. That'll work. But uh, I had some issues with my iPad, so got 58%, 57 now, so we'll see how this goes, okay? Uh, Humility was my first title, as Matt talked about, and I wanted to add to it, and I was hoping that I could email uh, Sherry before she printed it off the bulletins, uh, but I wanted to add to it, humility, the key to drawing near to God. And so, if you were to look at the English dictionary, uh, it defines the noun humility as a modest or low view of one's own importance. Now, looking at the world today, it is obvious that many do not place much value with this characteristic. And because of this, we have a world full of fighting and a world full of hate. Now, when it comes to the Bible, we also have this same example exemplified. There is one thing for sure. There is no shortage of examples of human nature displaying a lack of humility. Let's just think about it. Numbers, the 12th chapter, verse 3, tells us that Moses was the most or more humble than all men on the earth. Despite this, it was pride that actually resulted in him losing out on being able to enter into the promised land with the, his Israelite brethren. So we see that the most humble man on earth, even he was subject to this temptation of pride and losing humility. So today I want to look at James the fourth chapter verses uh, 1 through 10. I have those in the bulletin. And I have two main points. And I gave a series a few years ago on the book of James. I entitled it The Ethics of Faith. And so this week, uh, some <laughs> well, I'm not going to get into it. Uh, many of us have probably seen some of the same things in different ways, but obviously we, we, we're in a world right now where people all have their opinions, right? Everyone's a doctor, everyone's a scientist, everyone's a political scientist, everyone is, uh, you know, an expert on everything. And so, I came to, to, to James, the fourth chapter, because, you know, James talks a lot about the tongue. He talks a lot about strife and our interpersonal dealings. And I wanted to look at James today and kind of review this. First, few t first 10 chapters, or 10 verses of James 4, and I have two main points. Number one, reject friendship with the world. Well, we're going to get into this, and it's all connected to humility. And the second one is, in order to do this, it's my second main point, use the resources available to us. And James lays out some things that we can do. So let's go to James, the first cha or fourth chapter, and let's just read those first 10 verses real quick. James starts out in verse 1 of chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. 
You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but it gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lame it and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so we're going to just quickly start out with some background information here on this chapter. So James starts this section with asking a quick question. Where war and fights come from? And these two words are interesting Greek words because they're the terms, the terms wars and fights are the Greek words polemos and makai. And I might not be pronouncing those completely correctly, but they are often translated into English as quarrels or conflicts. Now these terms have some subtle differences, but they're very similar to each other. They can be used to describe several different types of conflicts. They can be used to describe literal wars, literal fighting or literal physical violence, but they are more often associated or referring to verbal strife. For example, the term makai is used three times in the New Testament, and its occurrence in the LXX or the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament that was widely used in this day, donate primarily verbal quarrels or struggles. That is, arguing. This term is most associated during this period of time as people who are arguing with each other. And this is what James is getting at. Now we see arguing in almost every context of our life. In fact, today, probably more than ever, for several reasons. You know, an illustration is probably our political Congress, right? We can look at Congress and how they quarrel, they strife, they argue, they battle over all different types of things, over the federal stimulus package, over this law or that law, or how much money is going to go to this. We see this example in all areas of our lives. This idea seems to fit well with the rest of James's letter, which has so much to say both about the tongue, even though it's a small little body part, it causes a lot of problems. And we can see that James talks a lot about the tongue in many different ways, even including you can say in chapter 4, he's still talking about how volatile our mouth can be. Now, it's not hard to imagine situations, as I just kind of alluded to, where maybe we have been in conflict or strife. Maybe it was physical, but probably more than likely, more often, it was verbal. I know I can think about this. It can be with family members. It can be with your own children sometimes. It can be with friends. But usually, these conflicts are often accompanied by a myriad of negative terms, back and forth shouting, and even sometimes physical violence, because that's what they lead to. In today's society, where there are so many mediums of communication, 
we can see just how rampant verbal strife has become. We can see it. It used to be that you had to be in a physical contact. You know, you had to be able to hear somebody to, to argue with them, right? You had to be in the same room or at the same place. Not today. Those days are over with. With the advent of social media, location is no longer a barrier to argue with someone. People argue with strangers, people across state and national borders, and it's not just social media. Because you know, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those, those are the ones that we see all the time, the popular ones. Well, do you guys remember the physical newspapers? They still print some, I believe. You know, the Tulsa World, if you live around here, or the USA Today. Well, many of them have become digital. And so used to, you would read your paper, read an article, if you had an opinion about it, you didn't like it, you really didn't have any, I mean, you maybe could go somewhere and talk to somebody about it, or you could write in a physical letter. Well, many of them have become digital to the point where not only can you read them online, but they often also have a comment box at the bottom of the articles where people can voice their thoughts and opinions. So you can't even go to a website that's just for news sometimes and read an article without a comment box where people are arguing back and forth. And we can see that this is done in almost every platform that there is out there. Unfortunately, we have been able to see a rise of this across our country in the last few months. Uh, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, right? Uh, in the wake of both the pandemic of the coronavirus, as well as arguments about social issues or civil issues, we have seen both a rise in verbal quarrels and strife, and what's worse is that we can see what it leads to. We can see that it leads to physical violence, and we've seen that. And it's everywhere. It's at places you would never expect. People have phones, and you see they record people arguing. I mean, you, whether it be the grocery store and city streets and parks, everywhere under heaven, literally, someone somewhere is arguing. And someone has a camera, and they can, they can record that argument that sometimes leads to physical violence, and they can post it on some sort of social media platform. It's unfortunate. It's not just a, you know... The people who are, you know, rough and tumbling, the, the, the stereotypical people you'd think be arguing and fighting in places. It's moms and grandmas and every different kind of individual that you would never expect. But what is the cause of such things? James, in the second part of verse 1, gives us the answer. James tells us that the source and cause of such quarrels lay in our own desires puts it back on us. I like this because it's not like a cop-out. Well, you know, Satan, you know, he's tempting you. That's true. But he puts it on us as people. He writes in the second part of verse 1, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? I like the way that the Net Bible, it's the New English Translation Bible, translates this phrase as passions that battle inside you. If I don't ever read about, we're getting ready to look at some of the historical context of these words. If I've never read any of that, that resonates with me. As a human being, and I think as a human being yourself, 
you're familiar with those battles, with those struggles. This term and phrase comes from the Greek word hedon, desires, which simply means pleasures often associated with some sort of sinful connotation. It's where we get the word, maybe you've heard of it before, hedonism, which the definition, if you just looked up in the English dictionary, the pursuit of pleasure or sensual self-indulgence. In the New Testament, this term is almost exclusively used, hedon, desires, in a negative sense, referring or describing selfish or sinful desires. These desires or passions are often described in the same way that James described them as creating a war within us. And we see it in many different places throughout the New Testament. For example, 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 11, we see that Peter speaks of conflict between a person and their sinful desire. That's what we're fighting against, right? I mean, human nature creates those sinful fleshly desires in us. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew, the 26th chapter, verse 41, when he's in the garden, when he's right before he's getting ready to be arrested, to pray in order not to enter into, into temptation, saying, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I think that there's some historical background that can shed some light on what James may be getting at. Because in, during this time, a little bit later after the period of the first century, the New Testament period, there developed this idea within Jewish thinking about the war within a person's body. And they almost became kind of literal about this. This idea was that people had 248 members in the body. And there is an evil urge and a good urge that fight for prominence. It kind of reminds me of that saying, I think David said it a few weeks ago, you know, you have two wolves inside of you. you know, which one's going to win? The one that you feed, of course. But there is a possibility that James may have been familiar with this concept, and he was using this language to get his point across to an audience that might have been familiar with some of the early forms of this idea of this war within our body. I think that this concept is very familiar with us in terms of our human experience. Just kind of how I alluded to a minute ago. All of us experience conflict in life. We have to battle our fleshly desires. Even though we've come into a covenant relationship with God and have been given His Spirit, we still every day have to war against the desires that put us at odds with God's ways and His character. That's never going to go away until we're perfected in God's kingdom. In fact, I would argue that God's spirit in us probably makes us more aware of just how prominent the tug of the flesh is. It enlightens us to understand it. Doesn't make it, it makes it easier in the sense that we're given a resource to fight it. But before, kind of as Paul writes in Titus the third chapter, verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were also... Once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And it's almost as if before that spirit comes into us, we might have an inkling that, you know, there's these fleshly desires, but we don't realize the conflict that it brings between us and God. We're not even almost privy to it. James tells us to reject these fleshly desires. Because they lead to strife and quarrels in which ultimately, even if they start out as verbal, 
are the seeds of fighting, war, and even murder. What they can lead to is much, much worse. And sometimes it's not even literal murder, literal killing, literal war. They lead to the destruction of relationships. They lead to the destruction of, um, you know, our character to to an extent. A good illustration, I think, that brings this out, I think, is the very first murder in the Bible. We all know what that was. It was a fat fratricide, as they call it, a sibling killing another sibling, Cain and Abel. And we know the story that Cain, out of jealousy of his brother Abel, out of being upset that God didn't accept his offering, he rose up and killed him. He desired to be the one in the spotlight. He desired, even though he wasn't presenting his offering with a pure heart, he desired to be like the most loved brother. And I love what Genesis, the fourth chapter, verses 6 and 7 says. God says to Cain, the Lord said to Cain in verse 6 of Genesis 4, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Sin lies at the door. Those fleshly desires lie at the door. Our wants, our frustrated desires, all of those lead to disputes, to quarrels, and we're supposed to reject those, to put those out of our lives, because what they lead to ultimately is death. It could be murder, it could be war, it could be all different types of things. So that's kind of the background of what James is talking about. He's talking about, and obviously there is, the people he's writing to have a lot of these issues going on, a lot of quarrels, a lot of strife. People are just running around saying all kinds of things. So my first main point, after James discusses this concept of war and fighting, that is the result of our fleshly desires, He relates this to friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. That is because the desires that James is talking about are desires that are set on worldly things. They're not set on things of God. So James gives an imperative, which is my first main point, which we've already talked about. Reject friendship with the world. Reject friendship with the world. Why? Because friendship with the world makes us Two things. The first one, adulterers. It makes us adulterers. Strange language. You have to understand a little bit of the biblical context to understand where James is getting at because it's consistent with some of the terminology that's used to describe the nation of Israel as well as the church. The language in the Greek literally says, you adulterers, which is a feminine noun and recalls the language used by the Old Testament prophets during Israel's unfaithfulness to God, who as the wife of the Lord, or Yahweh, claimed to serve God. We've all read the stories, right? They claimed to serve God, but simultaneously and actively pursued the idols of the Canaanites. And we see that up and down roller coaster of the nation of Israel. Now there's an interesting, again, don't want to get too historical, don't want to get, you know, but, but it brings out some of these ideas, that sometimes when you look at these terms and you don't look at them in the context, sometimes they can lose the value that they have when you understand some of those terms are used just a little bit differently in how we do in the English language. A note on this term friendship, 
I think when we look at it and some of the, the background, I think it makes this word more impactful. Because in antiquity, back in these days, back in this time period, the concept of friendship was usually taken to mean something a little bit more than what we consider it to mean today here in our Western culture. Today we use this word very loosely and would probably claim that many friend, you know, claim we, that we have many friends even if we don't necessarily share their worldview. In contrast, in James's period, this word was used to describe a lifelong pact with people with shared values and loyalties. And in essence, being a friend with someone or something meant lining up and calibrating oneself with that person or entity in thinking, values, and longings. So it meant much more than just the way that we sometimes commonly use friendship today. We also know another concept. We also know that the concept of marriage is utilized with the church just as it was with Old Testament Israel. As the church is often referred to, one of the titles, the Bride of Christ. And we see that throughout the scriptures. So we see many parallels between Israel and the church in terms of that idea of being in covenant with God in a, almost a marriage concept. Likewise, the term was described by many in the New Testament to mean more than just, well, excuse me, rather. Oh. Okay, this is the, this is the result of not being used to, uh, fingers got too, too quick there. Okay? All right, so we know that another term that's used here uh, in the New Testament or in this context is the term cosmos. Okay? Uh, friends with the world. So we understand what friendship is, friendship with the world, and what it results in. One thing it results in is adultery. Uh, but we have to understand what it means, world, in the context of the Bible. Many of us know that this is a Greek word, cosmos. We use that word, the cosmos, cosmology, the study of planets, the world. This same term was used in many other parts of the New Testament, uh, including the book, or not the book, but the author John in one of his epistles, 1 John, the second chapter, verse 15. He talked about the cosmos, the world, about love of the world being opposed to the love of God. So it's not the physical planet, obviously, that's being talked about here. It's the ways of the world. Paul also used this term, cosmos, in 2 Timothy, the third chapter, verse 4, talking about it as a system of evil controlled by Satan, including all that is opposed to God on earth. And so we know the earth is good. The world is good. It was created by God. It's tainted by sin. But when the New Testament uses the world, it's talking about the world systems, the world system, the ways of the world. Related to this concept, I think we can look at what Jesus said. This concept of having, you know, double allegiances, so to speak. You know, being friends with the world, you know, one foot in the world. Of course, we have to live in the world, but that means to have one foot, you know, trying to kind of go after the things of the world and maybe one foot trying to maybe serve God. Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 24, middle of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about the love of things over the love of God. And he tells us that it is impossible to serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. One master will hold primary affection of the subject. And that is something that we understand. We have to have total allegiance to God. And this is related very specifically to what James is getting across. Because in verse 8, 
James talks about this idea of being a double-minded person, trying to maintain a double allegiance. And it's also something that Jesus was just getting at when we read in the Sermon on the Mount, just like I refer to that passage in Matthew, the sixth chapter. Therefore, to flirt with this world in friendship is to choose to commit adultery with this world over and against God. And so when we have friendship with God, one of the things that makes us is an adulterer. If we are friends with this world, we are engaging in spiritual infidelity against God. The second thing that this does, what this makes us, is it makes us a, uh, it, it makes us an enemy against God. An enemy against God. But before that, and I want to apologize, I'm, I got a couple more illustrations. I want to go back to the concept of marriage, okay? Uh, concept of adultery. To be an adulterer, we know what that means. It's one of the commandments of God. Okay, do not commit adultery. One must be, obviously, in a relationship with someone to commit adultery. You're in a relationship. You're in a covenant, a marital covenant or contract. In other words, when we use this term today to refer to the act of adultery, we usually are speaking in terms of either a husband or a wife breaking that contract, obviously, by engaging or attempting to engage in another relationship. And we know that this is extended by Jesus to more than just the physical act. In the same way, James is using this term, adulterer, because he is speaking to individuals who have come into a relationship, a covenant relationship. He's talking to believers, believers in Christ, that have come into a relationship with God in Christ and are flirting with another God or deity. In this case, the deity James is speaking of is the world, as we just uh, talked about. But it also is talking about that internal world of ourselves. The internal world of ourselves where we allow our passions to reign over us. Now, today, there has been a lot of, you know, talk. We're aware of it. It's something that, uh, you know, has been statistically recorded. And I'm talking about divorce rates, failed marriages. And as we know, they're not good. The statistics in the United States of America are not very good when it comes to people who uh, get married and that marriage to last for a long period of time or till death like it should. A few years ago, I did stumble across an article, though, and it was entitled, Why Women Leave the Men They Love. Why Women Leave the Men They Love. And I'm not going to read the article, but I want to tell you a little bit about it because the article described a different type of infidelity. And I think that this infidelity is something that will lead to literal infidelity sometimes on the other spouse. And it's one that sometimes I think appears innocent to people and is often ignored and looked at as harmless. Uh, but it can be just as fatal to the marriage as physical in infidelity. And that is describing an absent spouse. You know, you're married to someone. You're supposed to be the top priority, obviously, the wife or the husband, the kids. God's obviously first. But the spouse, the spouse who was having, in this situation, talked about the spouse having an affair, not with some physical person, not with another human being, but an affair with a golf course. An affair with their work, with their hobbies. The spouse whose focus was on everything but their significant other. 
the spouse who is physically there, but emotionally and mentally absent. And there's been a lot written on this, and it oftentimes is the cause of a lot of marital problems. There's many different marital problems, and I am by no means an expert on all of those, the psychology of marriage and the counseling and all that, but it's something that has been shown on many marriage counselors that have talked with you know, thousands of couples. This is a common theme. So, the spouse who is physically there but emotionally and mentally absent because their affection and heart is on other things. And as I look at what James has to say about friendship with the world and adultery, it's hard not to be reminded of that article. Because I think that sometimes we get in this mindset as people that unless we're like physically engaging in like idolatry or bowing down and worshiping an idol or worshiping another god or things like that, that we're not committing adultery against God, that we're not committing idolatry against God. And I think that this is something that's very naive. It's a naive misconception. Adultery against God can happen anytime we allow our full allegiance to God to take a back seat and be focused on other things, specifically fleshly desires. And I will fully admit that there have been instances in my life where I've looked back on a period of time and I've thought to myself, man, I really haven't been focused much on God. My, my whole focus has been on this little simple fleshly issue that's been going on. You know, what's more important to me right now? Well, you know, cognitively I would say, well, God's more important. But was I living like that? Did I have any evidence? So maybe you have experienced times in your life where maybe you can look back and you can feel like, man, I really wasn't focusing on God. There's a lot of things getting in the way and getting in between me and really my allegiance to God. The second thing, I can now get to it, the second thing that friendship with the world does is it makes us enemies of God. Not only adulterers, but enemies of God. And a great example of this is illustrated by the children of Israel. The children of Israel, the stories of the Old Testament are so enlightening on human nature. On what it's like where people, they, they fool themselves and despite all the blessings, it's a great example of human nature, but it's also a great example of how foolish we humans can be in squandering the blessings that we've been given. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's something that uh, I think as time goes on more and more and more, you know, I get a little older, we all get a little older, we see a little bit more of life, and we read these stories, you know, year in, year out, and they like become more relevant than ever. It's like they become more relevant as you get older than, they, than they, they were when you were younger. But we see and we know that their unfaithfulness brought about God's anger and hostility to the point where the nation of Israel, even though they had the promises, they were the promised people, and that there is a plan that they would be restored and that God would bring them back. But they, the people of God, the people that came out of Israel, because of their unfaithfulness, a big chunk of the Old Testament prophets was devoted to this issue of them repeatedly disobeying God, falling into unfaithfulness, and them warning that you are becoming God's central enemy. And over and over and over and over again, you see that God is angry with the nation of Israel because of their unfaithfulness. Daniel, the seventh chapter, a very popular chapter in the biblical text, it describes the four beast powers. And you can get into those, and you can read all the different significant, you know, 
details about how this power, these powers applied to this nation or this old empire and this old empire and how they line up with the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans eventually. But what's interested is, is that what we see in the end is that they are all destroyed by the kingdom of God. All who align with this world system will become enemies of God. And the audience of James, they were displaying lots of worldly characteristics, even if they didn't realize it. We see in James, the whole book, James 2, we see discrimination against people. These are Christians we're talking about. We see in James, the third chapter, we see the issues of speaking negatively about someone, about the tongue. And he, you know, he continues that line of thinking into chapter 4. Here in the present text, in chapter 4, we see not only the tongue, the, the fighting, the bickering, but we see the pursuing of worldly and selfish pleasures creating strife and conflicts. All of these behaviors demonstrate a rival allegiance, one that sought the carnal will of God's will, the carnal will over God's will. So what about the context of our lives? Because we have to ask that question, right? We have to ask the question, are we agents of the world or are we agents of God? Are we contributing to the world kingdom, the system that this world is producing, which we know is made after the image of humans, not after the image of God. That is the metaphorical sense. Or are we contributing to the kingdom of God here on this earth? And of course, God's kingdom's not coming here per se until he brings it back. Keep the Feast of Tabernacles, we celebrate that. But the New Testament repeatedly tells us that we are lit to live as if we are governed by that kingdom. Are we, how about our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions? Are they befitting of our calling? What consumes us? What is our internal motivation? Is it our fleshly desires? Is it ourselves over God? There's an interesting, some, something interesting that was kind of reminded, I was reminded of whenever I was writing up this message. When I used to be a history teacher, for some of you that don't know this, uh, still in education, but I work in a different capacity now. But I taught world history, so we covered all the different world, you know, from ancient history all the way to the present. Uh, I try to fit that into nine months. When when I was teaching the Roman Empire, for example, we taught about, you know, the Roman Empire is very influential on our Western society. You really can't understand the development of Europe and stuff until you learn a little bit about the Roman Empire. And so we talked about the, the factors that contributed to the fall of the empire. And one of the factors that historians often point to in Rome's fall is the increasing nature, the, cre the, the increasing number of mercenaries that they utilized in their armies. That is just basically hired soldiers, hired armies. They're not necessarily Roman. They're not Roman citizens. They increasingly, as time went on later in the empire, used mercenaries. And so when you think about that, one of the problems that this caused was the motivation factor. The people fighting for you, they're motivated not by loyalty to the country, loyalty to the empire. They're not native Romans. They're not Roman citizens. Their first loyalty is themselves because the reason they're fighting for you is for a paycheck. And so if you're an army 
And this general comes over here and pays you to lead your army. You're the leader of the army, pays you such and such money. And then a couple weeks later, another general comes, and guess what? They pay better. So guess what? I'm going to ditch this army over here, which might, may be the enemy of the army that I just agreed to fight for. And then what happens was that over time, there was no real loyalty in the people fighting for the Roman Empire. There's many other factors. But what would result is a civil war. I'd hire this you know, group of mercenaries or this group. And then when you have civil war, it's going to fracture the country. It's going to fracture this empire that slowly already was being deteriorated from the inside out. And this is what happens to us spiritually when we no longer have a single allegiance to God or we're not motivated by the spirit, you know, the, the spirit of God, holiness, to be holy, to, to have a heart after God. We're more motivated basically looking for what's going to most fulfill us. We start looking for rival gods that bring us the most satisfaction in life, even though the satisfaction the world brings is a dead end and all the finality. It comes to nothing. So friendship with the world, we know that is adultery with God as well as making us an enemy with God. My second main point, get to what we can do. What we can do to fight against these temptations. James, the Fourth chapter, verses 7 through 10, gives us several things. List out several resources. The, the second main point is use the resources available to us. And he provides us with some of these resources. Let's just read 7 through 10 again. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Lame it and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And so the key ingredient, which is the title of this message, I think is humility. It's humbling ourselves. And as I mentioned, the definition of humility is a modest or low view of one's importance. Now obviously, this isn't meant to be taken to believe that you just, you're nothing. You're not worth anything. We are worth something. We're a child of God. But what it means is, is that we understand our place as a created being in the sight of the Creator. The passage before this, James says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, this is in verse 6, therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is a quote from Proverbs Chapter 3, verse 34, that says, Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. And the humble, obviously, all through the New Testament, oftentimes, is associated with the poor. Because in this day and age, rich people weren't humble. They thought very highly of themselves. In fact, being wealthy and being humble, kind of a contradiction. It was almost like they would brag about you know, their riches, and it was, it was like a rite of passage to be able to get wealthy so you didn't have to be lowly anymore and humble. Those people who were forced, those poor, for, this, is a, this is a part of the, 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 the beatitudes of Jesus in Matthew, the fifth chapter. Those who were forced to rely on God because in their situation, that is speaking of the poor, there is no other choice. Just 
as we replicate the mindset of a child in the same way and when we encounter and have faith in God. We also have to approach God like we're poor. And not in the sense that we're poor financially, but we're poor. We don't have the resources. We submit to God because we don't have the resources. The poor don't have the resources to be able to, to, to get along in life or be able to flourish in life. Children don't have the resources to be able to take care of themselves. And we have to approach God by submitting to Him. And of course, this starting action is humility. But we also, in doing this, we have to submit to God. Because that's the first act of showing humility. All of the things that we're going to list, all of the resources are acts of humility. But the first thing that James says here in verse 7 is submit to God. Submit to God. The resource of submission. Now submission, again, in the world, is a negative thing. Why do you want to submit to something? Submit to somebody. Submit to some being. Why would you want to submit? That means that you're putting yourself below them. See, God's ways are the opposite of the world's ways and the way that our natural carnal mind wants to think. Because submission entails placing ourselves under the lordship of God and accepting his authority over our lives. Now, that's something that's basic. It's, it's basic, but do we do it? I mean, I can think of many in, in times where I'm, you know, I could step back and say, I really was not, God really, I wasn't allowing God to be Lord over my life. I really wasn't accepting his authority on this. I was trying to do it myself. I was prideful. I was trying to, whether it be in dealing with something that you're going through, or whether it be, you know, being stubborn in the way that you think about something, there's all different ways that we can approach this. This idea of submission to God's will in line with what, is in line with what inspired this entire string of passages. It's, it's all over, not just this string of passages, but all over the book of James. James's audience seems to have allowed their passions or desires to run so rampant that it led to strife and fighting among each other. And they had lost sight on what the will of God was. Because I can tell you this, if they were submitting to God, they probably wouldn't have been fighting with each other. The Greek word submit means put in order under. And it's suggestive of the hierarchy of authority. The hierarchy of authority. There's another thing that's interesting about this passage because submission, it's, it's related to this idea of resisting. Submission and resisting, it can, look, it, can, it can be seen as opposites. You can submit to something or you can resist something. But you submit to God because he has this. Submit to God and resist the devil. Submit to God, resist the devil. Oppose the devil. When we look at this, and obviously the, the, the New Testament talks a lot about Satan, the adversary, the, the God of this world. But one example that's really interesting, which is probably one of the most telling examples, is the one where Jesus encounters him in the desert. And we see that Jesus resists Satan. And what do we see? We see Satan flee. We see that there was an effectiveness in Jesus' resistance. He submits to God. He resists Satan. Satan tempts him. He, in this, it's a literal situation. We're probably not going to have Satan physically come to us. I'm not saying it's out of the realm of possibility, but it doesn't seem to be how it normally works. It's more of a spiritual thing. 
But this physical encounter, which also had spiritual implications, can teach us a lot as well. Because we can see the resistance. His resistance caused Satan to flee. At least for a time. It's not like a one-stop thing. Like, hey, you resist Satan once, he's going to leave you alone. This same word resist is used of God resisting the proud. Another thing. So the same way that you resist the Satan, the devil, the same way that this word is used of God resisting the proud, that's how we're supposed to resist Satan, the devil. God resists the proud, and in like manner that God resists the proud, we are to resist the devil. And it's hard to do. It's hard to do because we have not only Satan, who is our tempter, but we also have the fleshly desires that are there. The idea is that the previous behavior demonstrated was submission to Satan over submission to God. So, James is getting at that you need to submit to God and resist the devil. Because right now, it's the opposite. You're submitting to the devil and you're resisting God with the way that you're focusing on your own fleshly desires. At the heart of Satan's agenda, we know this just from the scriptures, is to get us to doubt, to deny, to disregard, and ultimately disobey God's word. And you look at the first passage in the Bible, the serpent, you know, that old serpent of old, which is identified as Satan the devil. What do we see? We see the devil, we see Satan trying to tell them, tell Eve, that, hey, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. And sometimes I think, and of course, we, we don't know fully Satan's ways. We're given a little bit of an understanding. But I think that it goes without saying, and I think that many of you would agree, that sometimes that there's a lot of biblical evidence or biblical examples that demonstrate that sometimes we are in denial of something and we're not even aware of maybe a sin that we're committing or a sin that we're involved in or a mindset that we have. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and let's just read an example of this. I want to read an example. You guys have read this story before, 2 Samuel chapter 12. So we all know the story about David and Bathsheba, right? Okay? So technically he commits murder, I guess you could say, in the sense of making sure that Uriah the Hittite, which was the wife of Bathsheba, because he desired and he wanted to commit adultery with Bathsheba, and he ended up getting her pregnant, and then what happens is, is that he puts Uriah the Hittite in the front of the battle. This lowly person that really just did anything David needed him to do. And so Uriah the Hittite dies. David's off the hook. No one's going to know about him. He takes Bathsheba as his wife. It looks like it was legitimate because, oh, well, Uriah died, so David felt bad for it and took his wife, and of course she became pregnant then, but obviously trying to hide the fact that this was before Uriah was dead and that David himself was specifically to blame for why he died. So Nathan, who was a prophet during this period of time, comes and talks to David and he gives him this parable, this story, and it makes David angry. And verse 1 of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to Daniel, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. 
It ate, of his, it ate of his own food and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's hearing this story and he's becoming angry. And in verse 5, David says, or David, it says that, So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the land, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And to David's surprise, in verse 7, Nathan says to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? To do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will, make, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. It's an interesting story. Because David wasn't even, he was so out of touch with reality in this instance. And we know that David did a lot of great things. And he was a man after God's own heart, but he, was still, he still had this. He still had flesh. And he still had weaknesses. But he didn't even recognize this story. And I think that sometimes we can fall into the same traps. So we have to ask just the literal question. Well, what does resisting look like? How do I resist the devil? How do I resist temptation? When things befall me, I, I mean, I think that it's going to be something that we have to continually work on. But first, real basic, how about get out of tempting situations? We all have different struggles. We all struggle in different areas. Situations that make it difficult to resist because the flesh, the carnal nature, it's something that we're inclined to. You know, kind of getting back to just what James is talking about, quarrels and arguments. Maybe, if, you know, to, to go with some of the illustrations we use today, if if social media, or, if, or rather if maybe arguing, or debating, quarreling, strife, is something you're prone to, then specifically on social media or something like that, maybe it's something we should consider whether we should be using it or not. You know, things that put us in a situation that set us up to be able to fall into a temptation, maybe we should question whether or not we should put ourselves in that situation. Of course, I just used the example of social media, but there's other examples that all of us would have to come up with in our own minds. 
How about replace those situations with things devoted to God? Maybe time set apart to just focus on God. Simply put, set a daily time to pray. A daily time to pray. I mean, I, I know it's, it's easy to kind of like laugh that off. Oh, I don't need a, a specific time. I pray all the time. But I think that setting a time to pray to God that you do every single day, I think it's really beneficial and I think it can be really impactful because of the world we live in and how quick it is. You get busy, work happens, life happens, and it's easy maybe to put that off. And then you look up and few days, a week, maybe a month goes by and you really haven't been praying to God at all. Studying scripture, same thing. Being intentional. Being intentional. Be with other children of God when possible. Obviously that's what we're doing right now. So resisting looks there's a lot of different ways that resisting can look depending upon what we're going through. You know, what we're prone to. What our temptations are. Despite this though, despite this we have to know one thing. We have to be mindful of one thing. We still live in the world that is controlled by an adversary. And resisting is something that we will always have to do. Resisting the devil and resisting ourselves, our own fleshly nature, is not something that's just a one-time thing. It's a continual thing. You have to wake up every day with the mindset and understanding that you have to prepare for that battle. It's going to be there until Christ returns, until we're changed, until we all come into the, you know, the perfect knowledge of Christ, which is going to come when our change comes to someday. We will have to fight that battle. But we don't have to lose heart because God does give us the promise that he will give us the ability to withstand those temptations. The next resource is that of clinging to God. While we resist temptation, we must cling to God, which is a natural response to the realization of how much we rely and depend on God after we have humbled and submitted ourselves to his rule, authority, and will. Now the language that James uses is the language of cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, you sinners. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Now to us, we understand cleansing and purifying, maybe in a different way that James's audience would understand those because these terms in James's time would probably remind them uh, his readers of the different ceremonies used within the temple by the priests. And so the addition of the term you double-minded is interesting because it adds some significance to this passage. Because double-minded is the opposite of purity. Purity means one. It's pure. It's not mixed with any other elements. Purity brings to mind that there are unspotted and unclean, not tainted by a mixture. We must purify the mixture of motives and allegiances we may have to humbly submit to God. We must cleanse our hands, which could signify our actions, our hearts, which signifies, of course, our actions and our hearts is going to be related to our thoughts, our desires, our focus, that may demonstrate any two natures that we may have. The 24th Psalm, chapter or, Verses 2 and 3 tells us, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. We must come to God with 
not a double mind, but a single mind on his authority. The last resource is that of mourning. Mourning is important. Obviously, it's not comfortable, but mourning is a sign of true repentance. It's a sign of true repentance. Psalm, the 51st chapter, verse 17, related to that example that we talked about with King David. Beautiful psalm. On the very end of it, it says in verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Because it's coming within. Like those in James' audience, people who are aligned with the world and the attitudes of the world, probably did so with an errant thinking that the path they were on would bring them what their hearts desired. Realizing that path was a dead end is going to bring about repentance and mourning. Realizing that that path leads to nothing. That you have sinned. That you have fallen short. Mourning is something that's not comfortable. But I think it's an important element of us submitting to God. To clinging to God. To humbling ourselves before God. Let us consider... Just for example, what was missing in the story of the Israelites whenever the Philistines eventually stole the Ark of the Covenant? Maybe you've heard that story, right? The story of the, the, the Israelites, they're, they're, they're going to war with the Philistines. The Philistines are gaining, gaining on them. They're basically winning the battle. And they think in their minds, oh, guess what? I know what we can do. We can physically bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. And then, of course, God's powers would just be unleashed. He would, he would start protecting us then. They tried everything they could. But there's a few elements that was really important that they did not try. And they were the key elements. And the reason I'm bringing that up here is because I think they're the most important elements. And that is, there was no mention of repentance. No mention of seeking God out in prayer. No mention of mourning because they realized of how they had sinned against God. In fact, what we found at the end of the story in 1 Samuel, the 7th chapter, verses 3 and 4, not only did they lack, did they lack the repentance and the life that they were living because they were living in polytheism, they never even mourned. They never even recognized it. Verse 3 says, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks. This is way after the giving of the law. They knew better. From a, if, if you, uh, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the bells and the asterisks and serve the Lord only. There's probably a lot of foolish things that despite their best efforts to defeat the Philistines that was holding them back the entire time was something that they could have simply done. And that was submitted themselves to God. His ways. Put away. Resist the temptation to fall after the world's gods, the Canaanites' gods, this entire time. They were mixing the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with the pagan idols of the land of Canaan. They had a double allegiance because they still believed in the God of Israel and the God of Abraham, their ancestors, Abraham, 
Isaac and Jacob. They still believed in him, but they practiced like the Canaanites. To me, it's a great example of the double-minded man that James is talking about. Because even though it might not be a Canaanite God that we're bowing down to, in our lives, we can be mixing the elements of desires of this world and, oh yeah, I'm still aligned with God. We can fool ourselves. The very end, which brings us to this conclusion, the very end, the very last passage in James 4, verse 10, James says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Being humbled before God Almighty, I think, is the linchpin. It's the linchpin. It's the most important thing in becoming friends with God over friends with the world. It is what ensures us that our own allegiance with God requires a singleness of mind. And these string of passages in James chapter 4, like so much of James, he has presented us with practical and easy to relate scenarios especially as it relates to our human nature. So as we strive to live in harmony with God and to humble ourselves, to submit to God, to cling to God, to be friends with God over this world, to mourn when we need to mourn in repentance, let's think about these things that James presents us, especially in the context in which we live in today. Because maybe we found ourselves you know, engaging in some of the behaviors that we have seen on social media, we've seen on the news. This is a tough world to live in. And I think that it just got a little bit tougher. I think it just gets a little bit tougher all the time in terms of being able to live in this world and still follow after God, submit to God, have only God be the one in who we have our allegiance with. So as we think about these things, let's remember that humility is the key to being able to seek out God. It's the key to being able to submit to God and making sure that our hearts are pursuing after God's hearts, which in turn will make our hearts, our will, aligned with His will.